Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to another episode of the Comedy Real Field Report. The Comedy Real Field Report is a member of the Believe podcast family. That's why on your favorite podcast platform, it reads Believe in the Comedy Bureau Field Report. That's spelled B-L-E-A-V. Um, you're hearing probably a clearer, well, you know, maybe not as clear, but the fact remains that this intro is separate from the rest of the podcast, which is more of note than the weird name that I didn't intend for the name of the podcast. Um, me and my guest, Mike Bridenstine, just had two much from the fun from the get-go, so... Uh, I didn't get to an intro as much as I kept trying to remember to get back to it, but um, he is a wonderful comedian uh, and now an author on top of uh, being a dozen other things, podcast host, uh, former (laughs) tour um, docent guide at Dodger Stadium, Um, but an author of the soon to be released book The Perfect Amount of Wrong uh, Exhaustive History of Live Comedy in Chicago um, I'd say over the last 20 years it's uh, due out in on September 25th uh, I will put the pre-order link in the description or you can go find it yourself for your favorite place to go get books but again The Perfect Amount of Wrong uh, we talk all about it and a myriad of other things. Um, Vietnam and uh, anatomy being two of them that Mike likes talking about a lot. And that's on him. So without further ado, here's this episode. Um, cool. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks for doing it. Yeah. Thanks for having? Thanks for doing. What the fuck? Do, doing you? Thanks for <laughs> Leave money on the couch. <laughs> Are we recording? Great. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh man, what what a throwback for that! Like, uh, if you left cash on the on the dresser, I think it's like all through Venmo, right? Or Cash App. Jerry Springer first got famous uh, nationally because he wrote a check to a sex worker <laughs> when he was the mayor of Cincinnati. Oh my God! Really? Yeah, he recently passed away, but that's one of the first things that you would hear about him when he was famous, like right. on TV, is that mm-hmm. he made paperwork for his mm-hmm. career-ending decision. Uh huh. <laughs> so if you're gonna be mayor mm-hmm. of a town, mm-hmm. like make it a private Venmo. Right. <laughs> that's what it's for. Right. No checks. And don't be cutesy about it or yeah, whatever. Don't put the memo as like... Eggplant emoji. Eggplant <laughs> emoji, career ending sex stuff. <laughs> right. Winky smile. Yeah. All right. We're, now we'll start. <laughs> Great. Leave all that in. I think. Leave, leave all that in? Leave all of it. I don't know. Uh, Megan Keister made me do that. She's like, all of it's content, Jake. And if you're not uh, trying to make content when the record button is on, then I don't know what the hell you're doing. Keep your hands up at all times. Inboxing, I guess. 
Unless you're Roy Jones Jr. Unless, you're, unless you keep him down, like Roy, he's an exception. Well, also, like he did that for so long that now, as a commentator, he sounds like an idiot. Probably also being punched a bunch in the head. <laughs> yeah, like, like I don't think they even need to do an X-ray to see if he has CT. He definitely has CT. Oh yeah, there's like no question about it. <laughs> yeah. You need to check. I mean, if they checked it, they'd probably be like, "Let's take a look." Yep, it is. Yeah, I mean, it's. He also would knock people out by punching them in the stomach. Mm-hmm. That's the real demonstration of punching power right there. Too good, Roy Jones Jr. I'm not a, that big of a boxing guy. I just know that he was, like, unbeatable. Yeah, he was unbeatable for a while until he started jumping to a weight class. Like, he was, he's, he was like, a like lightweight uh, champion, and then he, like, went to middleweight, and way past his prime, he, like, tried heavyweight. And You're he, a big boxing guy? I was a big boxing guy, yeah. Who's your guy? Um, Roy Jones was one of them. Triple G was pretty great. Gennady Golovkin? Yeah. He was from Borat? <laughs> you sure he's from Borat? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was from Borat. Yeah. You know who's another uh, big boxing head? Uh, A lot of comedians, actually. McMenamin and... Um, Ryan is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a big boxing guy, and Morgan Murphy, I hear, is a big boxing fan. I thought she was a big baseball person. But Probably both. Boxing would make sense too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would see on Twitter every now and then she would post, "Anybody need a ride back from Phoenix? I will be listening to baseball the entire way in my truck." <laughs> and I was like, "That sounds nice." Yeah. Oh yeah, baseball talk. Let's <laughs> baseball talk with your boy. Yeah, inside baseball, which that's such a like utilized reference. Inside Baseball isn't even a show anymore, right? Inside Baseball? Was it a show? It was a show, right? Hardball with Chris Matthews. Is that what you're thinking of? No. I know Hardball with... Inside Baseball has to be a term or a show, but I don't know. Yeah, like it was a show that was like very nerdy for baseball, and then people just sort of like copy-paste it. it. Like, That's too Inside Baseball. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But Inside Baseball, is the exci- that's the part that uh, mm-hmm. when people don't know what's happening, they say it's boring. Uh-huh. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe the catcher's trying to tell him stuff and the third base coach is trying to tell that guy stuff. Right. And I don't know what it is, so it's boring. Uh-huh. That's what I don't like. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to say anything was boring growing up either. Really? Yeah. What was it, Your parents said you, nothing, you're not allowed to say anything. That was like one big thing. Right. I was not allowed to say I was bored. Right. I was to play outside or read books. Right. I could not say I was bored. Right. I mean, I I don't know if I wasn't allowed to say anything was boring, but I really tried to avoid saying that word. Yeah, because then your parents would be like, oh, you're bored? And then uh, be yeah, like, well, yeah. uh, chores need doing. Right, gardening. Yeah. Unnecessary gardening. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like a setting yourself up. If you're, if you're leaning, you could be cleaning type of, type of behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes me think of a Kaname bit where he's like, if you're over 30 and you say you're bored, that's like really privileged. Yeah. You ha- it's insanity to be like, <laughs> I'm bored. It's like you're fucking figure it out. Yeah. You can't like the internet affords you every possible form of entertainment. My brain moves at like a billion miles an hour right? and I have to like, like take edibles to shut it off like what's mm-hmm. going on in your life where you're just like i can't think of anything i'm just sitting <laughs> staring at a wall uh-huh. i'm bored like you don't have 
crazy racing thoughts, I'm jealous of your boredom. Right. You're not doubting every second of your life and questioning every <laughs> you're not thinking of somebody who who like fucking put you down when you were in eighth grade or like you're not like thinking about somebody who disrespected you yesterday like oh yeah stewing over it you're not thinking about this a text message you got a three for, weeks ago a former therapist of mine gave me homework to um basically just a not go out for one night stay home which yeah. i i hated yeah, yeah, yeah. and then for yeah. four hours out of that night don't do anything but she just he, sit she was a she she yeah she doesn't understand these outfits or what? She's, <laughs> obviously outfits? not. Obviously not. No, she. So I just sat there for four hours in a chair. She's like, "You could journal, but don't be on your phone." I'm like, "All right." I, I actually upped her a because I was a little competitive. I'm like, "All right, I'm just gonna sit here and not do anything." How'd it go? I got so sad. <laughs> like my my. So the implication of that is that you're busy to avoid the thoughts. The thoughts of just like, like literally every bad feeling in my life just like bubbled up to the surface for four hours. Yeah, because you're like, suppress it with fashion and statements and going to shows. I mean, that, but yeah, I guess like escapism is escapism from something. Right, right. Yeah, thoughts suck. <laughs> yeah. Fuck you, therapist lady. <laughs> she was great. Don't quit making me have them. She was the first person to get me to cry in therapy. Oh, she sounds like a like a real torturous like uh, villain is what it sounds like, <laughs> making you cry. Depends you on thoughts. what type of therapy you need. Some people they don't do really well with like. It's not good. To, it depends on if you want to cry sad <laughs> tears. What type life. of therapist do you want, Mike? I don't know. I I haven't done it. I probably should, but mm-hmm. I my biggest problem is that. I, I went in one time, and this guy's like, just go to the beach and make a sandcastle and then destroy it. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> Why? That that sounds like the watered-down version of, like, a like a frat rush challenge. He said something to me, too, that was it's bothered me ever since. What's that? And I don't know if it was, like, a test or mm-hmm. what. He's like – he said something like, so you kind of, like – what type of kid were you growing up? And I started to kind of explain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's like, you probably didn't like the, and he said the gay F word kids. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. I was like, I was like, no, I've never, what? <laughs> this therapist is trying to do gotcha questions. I don't know. Okay. He seemed like he was homosexual, mm. but which was interesting to me, but, right. but he's, so it was like, I was thrown off that he used that word. Right. And that it was like, I felt like accused of something. And I was like, no, I've never been weird about that. Like, why would I be mean to them? Right. And so he just like dropped it and moved on. But I was just like, what are you saying? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, because it came out of nowhere. It did. I was like, well, I liked, I liked, I was creative, blah, blah, blah. He's like probably like mean to the kids. And I was like, what? He like took one look at you. He's like, that's a homophobic kid. I mean, maybe, but... And I mean, that's very judgy of a therapist. Then he told me to make sandcastles and destroy them. And yeah. I was like, I'm not going back to this guy. <laughs> no, that sounds like a bad therapist. If it was you that did this and you're listening, I'm better now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your help in uh-huh. discovering <laughs> my hatred of sandcastles. Jesus Christ. 
what do you think that was supposed to like bring out in you like building well, maybe you wanted to see my reaction uh-huh right or maybe like that's my only theory mm-hmm. or he judged me as the type of person that did that right. which is i guess maybe i look like i would uh-huh that you would build a sad castle and destroy no it. that i would uh dislike I don't, types of people that weren't like me or something sure i don't know I'm sure that a lot of people assume that about other people, right? I think I like my joke about having resting January sixth face isn't because Mm -hmm. I don't think that I kind of look when I see those people. I'm like, oh, geez, right? Time to change a few things, right? Did Maddie Ryan like shave his head or something? Ah, now his hair got longer. <laughs> for the Matt's listeners, long hair. Yeah. For the listeners who don't know, uh, Matty Ryan looks so much like one of the January six. He Ryan. doesn't look like the person. He is the person who did. It. <laughs> by the way, we're in the green room. There is somebody who is at January sixth who signed the wall. Really? Who's, who's the most famous person that you can think of that was there? Oh my god! Oh, Jay Johnson. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Big on the wall right here. I almost want to go up there and be like one six <laughs> two one. Uh huh. <laughs> I mean, you could do it. I could. Wait, is Jay in jail now? No. Okay. I mean, he's in. He's in showbiz jail. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't think you go to that if shit's going great for you. No. No. If you're, yeah. But or maybe shit was going really great, uh-huh. and he wanted it to keep going great. Right. And he's like, I just got to keep this guy in power. He's really helping me out. Right. With, with all the cool policies and stuff that he's doing for me. Mm-hmm. But wait, Maddie lives in New York now. Oh, I was talking about Jay Johnson. Well, yeah, I know uh, Jay. Jay. No, things are going great for Maddie. You, things are going great for Maddie, definitely because he hopefully does not look like that guy anymore. No, he has very long, beautiful, uh, ro- like ropes of red hair coming out of that dome. He's yeah. Like, I haven't seen him in person, but in photos, right? Beautiful boy, that Maddie. But yeah, that makes on, me want to crush a sandcastle. <laughs> on January sixth, uh, so many of us in comedy thought it was Maddie because he looked exactly oh like. Oh my it. god, I sent that to. Yeah, that was so funny. The guy who waves holding the podium is the guy <laughs> yeah. who looks like Maddie. His same demeanor. Maddie would wave to the camera. Yeah, and he's like casually walking away with a podium. Yeah, that's very Maddie. Yeah, <laughs> very king of Chicago, Maddie Ryan behavior. <laughs> course he's got some podiums in that house you just know he does right 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 but from <laughs> from different rallies yeah it'd be a different rally it's not nancy pelosi's podium no it's like you know Lori lightfoot's podium yeah Lori, the former chicago mary Lori lightfoot yeah. they, they just elected a new one i mean yes and i guess uh high hopes for this for this guy uh-huh we'll see we'll see yeah. You want to get to comedy? Yeah, comedy. Yeah, well, no, I just want to talk about local Chicago politics. Yeah, let's talk about sports. Then um, yeah. your one instance with therapy that was bad. Yeah, boxing therapy and local Chicago politics. My three things that I talk about all the time. You know, I would be interested in that set list if that was what a set list read, as opposed to like bong rips, <laughs> like is it bong rips? Daddy issues. Yeah. And like, oh, Sarah yeah. Palin joke or whatever. Oh, I would take a Sarah Palin joke. Sure. I don't have no idea what she's up to. What is she up to? Uh, probably reality shows? Probably. I think she ran for something in Alaska and lost. Oh, great. Who? Yeah. I mean. I mean, I guess people like that, they just make money off of appearances now. Right? 
Yeah, she probably shows up to like I, the... you know you know what? I bet she has a cameo, Mike. I guarantee you she has. There's no way to find out though. <laughs> if I find it, you I'll think put Giuliani it... has a cameo. Uh oh, probably. I mean, he has to. Now. My sister got me a Jose Canseco cameo once, and wow. I, I, I was a big fan of that move. What What did she uh, have Jose? So say? when I when she started collecting baseball cards, mm-hmm. when I started collecting baseball cards when we were right. kids, but she had money from mm-hmm. babysitting, and right. I was a child with no money. Right. And so I would save up whatever I got for birthdays and stuff, and then mm-hmm. buy a card. And she would just buy that card after mm-hmm. like babysitting. Right. So she had better cards than me, mm-hmm. and I was so mad and jealous. Right. Because it's like, you don't even like baseball. You why, oh. why are you punishing me right. by having better stuff than me that you don't even care about? Right. And so I would try to – so I try, I started hitting her with psychological warfare. She had mm-hmm. a Jose Canseco rookie, uh-huh. and I kept saying – I just picked whoever I found uh-huh. out of uh, like a pack of cards. His name was Todd Froworth. Mm-hmm. But I called him Todd Frothworth. That's what it looked like to me when I was fucking eight years old. And I was, I kept going. She goes like, "Ooh, I got this Canseco, who she heard about from me." And I was like, "He's good, uh-huh. but he's no Todd Frothworth." <laughs> and I kept hyping up this Todd Frothworth guy that mm-hmm. he was like the king of the rookie cards. Right. And then one day, I built it up for like six months. Uh-huh. And then one day, I was like, "Oh my gosh." I found this Todd Frothworth. <laughs> She's like, what do you want? I'll give you anything. I go, I'll, the only thing that you have that can come close to this is that Canseco rookie. And she's like, deal. And we traded it. And I burst into laughter. And I was like, you idiot. I made it all up. And now this is mine. And so she had Jose Canseco say to me, give, your, give her back her rookie card. <laughs> Years after, like you know, yeah, 30 that's years amazing. After. Yeah, yeah, I think that's like the like the perfect cameo commercial. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to all the other ones. For my wedding, my best friend from high school gave mm-hmm. me an autographed Todd Froworth card <laughs> with a, like a thing of authenticity. So all you Todd Frothworth heads out there. Right. All right, I I I'll bring this up and then we'll get to to comedy. Yes. I. I've been wondering this for a while, and you might be the person, perfect person to ask. My parents, uh, very kindly, and with this, you know, uh, foggy idea of the future, bought an entire tops deck for for eighty seven, nineteen eighty seven. Wood panel background. That's my album cover. <laughs> yeah, and like uh, they thought that it would appreciate in value. That was the that was the rumor. Yeah, and then it's worthless. It's worth it's some guy might pay forty bucks for it. Not even it's complete and totally worthless. There's like a Bo Jackson um, Future Stars car in there. Card in there. Um, There's a McGuire Mm -hmm. rookie, kind of. There's Bonds, kind of early. So what happened to the baseball card? It was all a lie. Yeah, of course it was. So, baby boomers were seeing cards <coughs> that they had thrown out when they were kids become like hyper valuable, like the like a Mickey Mantle rookie card. Right. 
those cards now that now that it was like 30 years old were worth tens of thousands of dollars so the idea was this is going to happen again mm-hmm. and so the big card was ken griffey jr's upper deck rookie mm-hmm. but upper deck kept printing them because mm-hmm. it was literally printing money right so there's no so the supply and demand is all out of whack mm-hmm. and so that card became iconic but also ruined baseball cards for decades until they started doing new new and exciting things with them like putting pieces of the bats or pieces of the jerseys like in the cards and stuff like that or doing like digital Mm -hmm. things but pieces of cardboard became like worthless uh, unless they're psa graded or beckett graded and basically anything is worth money if somebody's well is willing to pay for it i needed a job for a while so i sold baseball my baseball cards and would Mm -hmm pay my mortgage some months with shit that I sold. Really? What was yeah. the biggest get? I, I sold a Ricky Henderson rookie that was like PSA graded. But, I mean, it was like a, a volume. I sold lots of – I had a lot of graded cards, and right. I still do, but yeah. What is PSA graded mean? Pacific Sports Authenticators. The first card that they graded was the Wayne Gretzky-owned Honus Wagner card. Uh-huh. And so they would do like a jeweler's eye to the uh-huh. card to right. see if there's like creases or if it's off center. Uh-huh. And then they give it a one through 10 grade. Uh-huh. And then they bound it in like hard plastic. Right. And so now it's not just a loose piece of, now it's somebody went, this thing is worth, this uh, This thing is like a nine. Right. So who's paying for these now? Uh, dudes in their middle ages who are buying their childhood. Right. Because, like, you can buy sports memorabilia that's better than a card now. Yeah, but there was some prestige in my generation of mm-hmm. owning those cards. Right. So there's specific, um, like, iconic cards from the late 80s and right. even throughout the 80s that right. people just want. And if, you, if you're, like, a dude with, like, money to spend and you're mm-hmm. like, I guess I'll buy this, you know, mm-hmm. Billy Ripken fuckface card. <laughs> Then you do, and I have, and I did, you know, I, you know, whatever, I was an adult and didn't, you know, didn't, Mm -hmm. didn't need to be jealous of my sister's babysitting money, then I got some of those cards. Right. And it's just, I don't know, why does anybody buy anything? Yeah, it feel, feel cool for 10 seconds. Well, I mean, there are some things you need to buy because you need them, but then, yeah. Oh, right. I mean, dumb stuff. Yeah, dumb stuff. Oh, yeah, because you want it. Because you want it. Yeah, yeah. But then there's a – I think there's a tipping point at which, like, stuff is created for rich people exclusively because they just have so much goddamn money to spend. Jeff Koons art. Oh, all of it. Yeah. All of it. Oh, my God. Yeah, stuff like that. It's just for uh, – For people who don't know Jeff Koons. That's appreciates in value. It, he makes giant sculptures that are blue enamels. Yeah. He yeah. makes giant Michael Jackson – Precious moments type uh, of oh that suit? that's the his other era <laughs> yeah he's a yeah yeah I feel like there's there's a whole segment of contemporary art that is like daring rich people to spend a bunch of money on things that really push the uh, boundaries of what can be defined as art for sure mm-hmm. a banana taped to a wall yeah yeah but. I mean, if you if you need to wash your filthy money, that's the goodest place as any. Right. Oh, that's the <coughs> that's the modern way to laundry money now. 
I think. And then yeah. a lot of them, I, or it's a way to, yeah. Mm-hmm. You owe your ex-wife $34 million. Buy a $34 million painting. Be like, I don't, I don't got it. <laughs> and, well, what do they do that in that case? They have to garnish something, right? Assets? You're probably poor. I don't know how things work. Why else would you <laughs> buy this shit for this much money? I know. It, uh, it is. It's oligarchs hiding their money from. Sure. Whatever they get. Busted That's from. how I think like watches work. Cause they're, you can get a watch as like, you know, a prize at an arcade, but you can also spend $15 million on a watch. God, I just shot a commercial with a kid who works at a fancy watch store. Uh-huh. If you replace one piece mm-hmm. of a Rolex and you bring it back into the store, right? They'll say, "Sorry, we can't fix this. It's counterfeit." Right. One piece. Mm-hmm. That's wild to me. It is insanely wild. And then uh, there are pieces of watches that are. Totally unnecessary to the actual function of it keeping time. Diamonds? Not even – diamonds, yeah, but, like, the actual functionality of the watch. Mm. Like, watch tech has gotten to the point where it'll keep time Oh, yeah, for you it. are a watch guy, huh? I am a watch guy. I'm a, I'm a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are a big, beautiful sandcastle just waiting to be destroyed, baby. Yeah, as long as I don't have to think about it, everything is bad. <laughs> yeah. Give him some watches. He won't have thoughts. <laughs> he needs to get away from them thoughts. Yeah. that If I ever wrote a set list, that would be on it. <laughs> How come you never wrote an L.A.-based uh, comedy book? You know, I've thought about it. it uh, the thing is, I don't think I would just want to do it on spec. Like, I'd want somebody interested in getting it, like, in advance and a deal. But then you wouldn't have to have thoughts. You could just keep writing it. and. Well, I mean, I don't mind having those type of thoughts. You want to write a book proposal, get paid monies, and then write it. Yeah. And live off in advance. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So, like, what you're laughing, meaning that doesn't happen anymore? I don't know. It didn't happen to me. Uh-huh. I hope it happens for you. Wow, what a perfect segue into Mike uh, has a book coming out very soon. September 25th on Barnes & Noble, on uh-huh. Bezos, wherever you buy uh, your book. Be- Bezos? Jeff Bezos just has it in his garage. <laughs> right. One of his garage. He has one garage. He's going to take it to Mars with him? Yeah, it's, it's on a garage on Mars, perhaps. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, it's called The Perfect Amount of Wrong. It's about... Uh, it's a – would you say oral history of the Chicago comedy scene? It is – I interviewed 50-plus uh, people over mm-hmm. you know hundreds of hours, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, there's a lot of quotes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen it, a version of it that is – You sent me an early, early, early version. Uh, yeah, and I was – yeah. And it – so now I could show you on my laptop. Mm-hmm. I don't have a physical copy of it, but I know what it will look like. Right. And yeah, it's uh, – it's it's a it's a history with a lot of quotes, right? And uh, uh, apparently, a lot of people, uh, a lot of dirtbags have come out of the woodwork saying that Brido is uh, misrepresenting them, which to me is the mark of like this is going to be a good book. <laughs> I I was I've been surprised at some of the anger. I will say that right. 
Um, there is the who are you, how dare you, what mm-hmm. is this mm-hmm. aspect of it, right. why do you get to do it mm-hmm. type of thing. Right. And it's kind of like, who says I can't? You? <laughs> well, I say I can, so right. that's all that matters. Right. right? If I, for anybody listening, like, if you're thinking about doing something and anybody's like, you can't do that, fucking who says? Right. Just go do it. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, no one's going to be like, well, how come you... If they are that way, then it means you're on the right track, really. Right. It means it's something that should be done. Right. I mean... Within the letter of the law. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's a dumb law. How about that? I mean, you know where my mind jumps? is like, well, I mean, if you want to murder somebody, don't. Well, no one's like, how come you get to murder them? (laughs) I I bet some serial killers are like that. They're mad. (laughs) Somebody else murdered a guy they really wanted to murder. Okay. Well, that's fair. I mean, there but are then you billi- would say then you have to look at that serial killer and be like, well, what were you doing that was so important that you couldn't do it? Uh-huh. If you wanted to do it so bad, uh-huh. you're just mad somebody got the jump on you, huh? <laughs> A little bit. Okay. <laughs> so blame yourself for your right. priorities. Right. I mean, don't you think the Golden State Killer, for all his heinous crimes, like he had to be thinking about his body count? Like, oh, I'm, I'm like all time now. Yeah, I'm starting to think that there's a real sickness about that guy. Wasn't yeah. there somebody in like South America who has like a oh, yeah, yeah. body count? Yeah, but they they it's like uh, with an asterisk because they haven't found the bodies. Whoa! It's, so a, it's all just like unverified claims by him. Oh, he's just like talking tall, and people are like, "Where are these bodies?" And he's like, "Ha ha! They're at a camp in Canada. You don't know her, right?" That's interesting. So, who has the highest body count of a serial killer? Um. Golden State Killer is up there. Well, that see the serial killer throws a, a wrench in the mix because I think Anders Brevik as a like a mass shooter oh. has the highest. That's the Vegas one. No, he was like in Sweden. He shot up like a like a sleepaway camp. Wow. Uh, and then blamed feminism. I feel like shooting people doesn't count. <laughs> I mean, some serial killers used a gun. I don't know. Did they? Know. Yeah. Okay, well... Yeah, Son of Sam used a gun. He was actually one of the most David wussy Berkowitz. ones. Yeah. yeah. Blamed a dog. Blamed a dog. Um, and he used a, he used a shitty gun, too. What did he use? 44? No, not a 44. He used some weird... I want to say like a 38 special... a staple gun. It was really... Right. No, but the thing was, it didn't kill people all the time. David Berkowitz sometimes failed at killing people because he had a weak gun, and and he would shoot it from a distance in like a dark alley. Like it would, it would, didn't always work. This guy's pathetic. <laughs> yeah. you're you're a loser, David. Uh-huh. What a loser serial killer. Yeah, and then blaming it on a, a dog, dog made me do it. <laughs> a dog made you shoot a pea shooter from an alleyway. Do you think that's even the, the dog sucks? Do you think that that's the origin of uh, oh the dog ate my homework? Yeah. Yeah. This guy sucks. He really does. Even even like even though his like life's work and ambitions are terrible, it's right. like fucking get it together. Right. Be better. Be better. Be best. Mm-hmm. No one said that in so long. Be, be best. Be the perfect amount of be, wrong. Be the perfect amount of wrong. Yeah. Yeah. What what do you think you captured in this book about the Chicago comedy scene? I've never really seen stand-up depicted to me in a way that felt authentic to the experience of stand-up. And so, I mean, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. 
And so I wanted to capture that. So it's almost like, in a way, it's almost like a people's history of the United States. I did talk to the people who made it, mm-hmm. but I also talked to people about um, who were just like present, who I think another um, writings or tellings of the scene, those people would get overlooked. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to like round it out and be sure. like, this person was there and important to it. Right. Whether or not they are famous. Yes, there are famous people, but like mm-hmm. these people were integral, you know? And kind of talk about, I used myself for a lot of, um, A, because I didn't have to ask anybody. Like mm-hmm. it was just my experience. And um, as an example of, this is what it's like to start in a scene. This is why, I think that there's lessons in there also about like why certain things worked or why mm-hmm. certain things didn't work or right. why what was uh, the book I, I don't know if we ever said it, it was about the Chicago stand up scene mm-hmm. um, that time kind frame of, it so the clubs closed in ninety five there's right. one club remaining mm-hmm. that club Zanies didn't nurture a local scene mm-hmm. so there's nowhere for anyone to go mm-hmm. and from that by two thousand eight it had cranked out. Matt Bronger, Kyle Kinane, T.J. Miller, Kamal, Kamal Nanjiani, Hannibal Burris, Pete Holmes, um, and then later on, you know, Beth Stelling, Cameron Esposito, and and Jenna so many Friedman. Uh, Jenna Friedman, and so many and so many others. And by the way, I'm I'm listening to Jenna Friedman's book right now. Mm-hmm. She talks about some of the same stuff that I have in the book. It's kind of right. interesting. Oh, cool. She <coughs> and Cameron were integral in. Um, making the scene closer to 50-50 male to female. And right. so, because when I was there, the most amount of women doing stand-up at any time was like eight. Mm-hmm. That's in the city of Chicago. Right. So Entertaining Julia was like a landmark show? Yes. That was started by Jenna and um, with this explicit goal of making it 50. It was in Boys Town. And, it, mm-hmm. and then she quickly moved to New York to pursue um, a one like a play that she had written Mm -hmm. and she hands that over to Beth Stelling and the Putterbaugh sisters Daniel and Tiffany right and so that along with Cameron Esposito Mm -hmm. and her show Femcom kind Mm -hmm. of launched like uh, uh, with for lack of a better term like a a safe space for women to Mm -hmm. go and not have it just be like creeps Mm -hmm. right because it was a lot of dudes before that. And it right. always made me wonder, like, what happened? Like, right. why all of a sudden were there, like, just a string after that of, like, Lisa Traeger, mm-hmm. um, Megan Gailey. Right. And other, like, non-cis dudes. Right. Like, River Butcher, Ever mm-hmm. Maynard. Like, right. And then there's, like, Lindsay Adams. And, mm-hmm. and then down the line, there, there's just, like, a ton. Whereas there weren't that sort of – it was it was a more difficult road before that. Yeah. Not that it wasn't difficult for them, but it was impossible before that. Right. Well, like, at the outset, the lion's den was probably not the most filled with women. No. In fact, if you look at – people saved their sign-up sheets for that because, oh, cool. like, like, it was a very big deal mm-hmm. to be asked to host. So a lot of the hosts would mm-hmm. save them. Right. And I saved them. And you can look and see how many women were on the sign-up sheets. And it's usually around, like – 10% of the whole show. Mm-hmm. So so like 3 out of out of 30. That's 10% that works out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so like it was yeah, there there weren't that many and and even if there were, it'd be people trying it out and being like bummed out by their experience and then not doing it again. Right. So it took a while. Right. For that 
But at the same time, the, I don't want to make it seem like it was like this, you know, conglomerate of dudes who got together and try, I mean, the dudes were still trying to make something, ha- anything happen. Stand up was lame, right? Culturally, because Second City was king, and Second City was king. There was no local scene to do anything about it. Stand up was for dorks. Mm-hmm. It was lame. Mm-hmm. It was not in the cultural zeitgeist in the same way that it is. And that was like countrywide. That wasn't just Chicago, right? There was, according to people that I talked to, jamming in New York. It was like '92, and mm-hmm. there's culturally nothing. Mm-hmm. From that point on until right. Chris Rock's first like big HBO special, right, and still like the clubs had closed to to really want to do it, it was like weird, right. I was at work saying I did stand up, and people in Chicago were like, "Do you mean Second City?" And I said no, and I would be like, "You know how Jerry Seinfeld." talks into a microphone at the beginning of the show and they're like yeah and i was like that's what i do <laughs> like they didn't know like right not until dane cook like around 2005 right. did it did people kind of like pay attention again right white people white people yeah uh deaf comedy jam had a big moment mm-hmm. obviously right but i was a white in right. uh chicago was very segregated yeah and so whites on the north side mm-hmm. for the most part were like they thought it was lame and the country thought it was lame right whites in the country thought it was throughout the country thought it right. was right well also i mean that speaks <laughs> to a bigger like if it throughout the history of stand-up like a lot of black comics have operated in a totally different sort of parallel universe right Moshe Kasher makes one of this he'll bring up bruce bruce and he'll be like oh if you don't know who that is that's because you're not black Interesting. Yeah. He's he's pretty famous, Bruce Bruce. Yeah, I know, but there are a bunch of white people who have no idea who that is. Fair. Yeah. There's a bunch of white people who don't know who Kyle Kinane is, but, you right. know. Yeah, but, but they know who Matt Reif is. That bothers me, but... <laughs> yeah, it bothers me a lot. But, I mean, God bless everyone who's doing... <laughs> I don't know this guy, but do you uh, put you put that in the front of your book? God bless everyone who's doing it. Yeah, that bless everyone who's doing it, trying to make stuff happen. Better than just sitting at home and not making stuff happen. <laughs> cool. I guess, yeah. Well, all right. You said that you want you didn't in your mind you didn't have uh, a thing like a, a piece of art or a book or a movie or a TV show that reflected the actual experience of stand-up. What do you think? The Big Sick was close. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. And I talk about that because I was there for all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. It was So that was close. Right. I mean, that was a... But it, like, it was also had Apatow's fingers in it. And Apatow's movies about stand-up just are like, what? Mm-hmm. Even with like Pete... Who right. I did stand up with right. prior to him moving to New York, right. that was foreign to me mm-hmm. to watch that. It, and like, I don't know, like Pete was always very confident, right? And Kumail's one man show was sold out with standing ovations and great reviews. And the movie, mm-hmm. I mean, they have to do like things to make it. You can't be just like. And Kumail was awesome the entire time. <laughs> right. Until he became a superhero. You have to have him have some conflict and stuff sure. like that. And besides just that Emily gets, like, you know, sit deathly ill. Right. But, yeah, it was – that was close. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know what else has been – what's been close to – not crashing. No, not crashing. Um Crashing was crashing was a lot of so let me get this certain straight. certain episodes of Louie maybe okay yeah yeah you know I I don't even know how I feel about it even still there was a movie called All About Nina you ever see that no is it Mary Mary Elizabeth Winstead stars as this like very troubled from the Daily Show no like the, the Liz Winstead no Mary Elizabeth Winstead sounds to me like you're saying Liz Winstead but go ahead. Ramona Flowers from the movie version of Scott Pilgrim. Okay. I believe you. <laughs> Do you know who I'm talking about? I don't, but go ahead. Oh, my God. My you... apologies to Liz Winstead and fake Liz Winstead. Uh, support Abortion Access Front, everybody. Yes. That's Liz's thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Actually, it's mentioned in Jenna Friedman's book, which I'm listening to. She's the queen of abortion jokes. Jen, you know what's weird is Jenna says that, and every time she says that, I'm like, really? And then I think about it, I'm like, yeah. Know, Jenna Friedman saying that about another abortion comedian. <laughs> Jenna Friedman says a lot of abortion-based things. Yeah. Yeah. Take no prisoners. Yeah, absolutely. With the abortion material. I love it. Um... No, she she plays uh, this like uh, rape survivor who like is a stand up and she's like processing all of that while she's like trying to like audition for JFL. Interesting. Yeah, and like a lot of they they specifically had a lot of LA based female comedians consult on the movie, so there there's some there's some truth to it. But then it becomes more about her journey, like processing trauma, than it is about stand-up. I thought comedian, the Jerry Seinfeld thing, felt like sure. felt like comedy. It should be. It's a documentary. Yeah. So that was that was interesting to see. It was, and I saw that before I did stand. But even like the Aristocrats is a documentary. Right. Have you ever once heard a comedian be like? So there's this family. Like no one's doing that. Yeah. Show. Gilbert Gottfried did it once on TV, and that was it. And there's a whole documentary of comedians telling this job. And I was like, where am I going to be when I have someone take me aside and everyone's doing it in the green room? It would have to be like a one-off show where everybody does their version of the aristocrats. But that was such a lie, that thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that... Right. The closest real, like, tangential connection... I remember... you remember this? Eliza Schlesinger... Uh, came out in an interview and said, "Like, oh, I all these female comics are so disappointing. All they talk about is oh, like vag." She has a joke about World War t- Two. Well, that's actually about <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, and it's about World War One. Yeah, trenches. Right, right, right. And like, um, in protest, like Sarah Schaefer, Cameron, a bunch of like comedians in the LA scene just like put together a show at Nerd Melt that was like, we're all gonna tell her, uh, like vagina jokes it'll just be a night of vagina jokes fun yeah and it was great i didn't know i don't remember this yeah it was a it was a big day and like there were comedians that got like i don't really even talk about it but i guess for the show (laughs) i i made one up interesting maybe this does ring i remember when people were making fun of eliza for saying that on an interview right especially for the fact i remember reading that i'm like eliza brings her dog to wherever she's performing and since most of the time watching like writing 
which is fine. But like, don't claim that you watch everybody. It's a you're never in a good position when you're like everybody else does bad thing, right? But me, <laughs> good smart thing. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, that's always that's never gonna go great. No, especially to comedians mm-hmm. to be like, listen, every guy comedian is always talking about his butthole. <laughs> But my butthole joke is about Vietnam. <laughs> so wow. that's my challenge to all the fellows to do a butthole-based show at Meltdown in 2014. Right. Oh, boy. A butthole v- Vietnam war joke is – there's no way that isn't problematic. Will you call this episode Butthole Vietnam? <laughs> I'll think about it. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'll think about that. Should be the name of your book about the LA scene from 2010 to 2023. Uh-huh. What it, uh, what do you think resonates with you about Butthole Vietnam that's representative if of You saw Butthole Vietnam on a bookshelf <laughs> at Barnes and Noble. Uh-huh. Or you, stories. You're not going to be like, what's this? Uh-huh. Or at the Glendale room, if you right. see Butthole Vietnam, you're right. going to be like, what is this? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no? Yeah. Jake, you heard it here first. Jake Kroger wouldn't look twice at a book called Butthole Vietnam. I would look twice. <laughs> yeah, and then I feel like for my own sanity, I would put in parentheses like this was a total attempt to get you to look at whatever the hell this is. Yeah. <laughs> this book is about tax reform. <laughs> I just wanted you to look at it. Right. Um... How long did it take you to write the book, Mike? So I think I started in – I started interviewing people, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what it was going to be, like in March of 2021. And mm-hmm. I finished it, quote-unquote, in January. I was like, finished is better than perfect. Finish it, start mm-hmm. shopping it around, right. and then um, found a publisher, found the History Press, and they were like, great. Uh edit out get it down to this word count mm-hmm. which ended up being 40 percent of the book mm-hmm. and i was like oh my god but mm-hmm. it made it a tighter better book probably so did you have to hire an editor or you did it i well i robert buscemi looked mm-hmm. at it buscemi is an editor and is part-time a listener of my podcast named uh phil huh. uh t- took a look at it mm-hmm. and then they have one Mm-hmm. And then they'd send it back to me, and then every now and then I'd see a word missing and mm-hmm. freak out about it. The whole process takes much longer, right? Than because you have to reread your whole book, right? Yeah, which was a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Everyone should read this book. <laughs> yes. How many times would you say you read it? And... Oh my god, so many times. Uh-huh. Because when you're writing it, it's uh-huh. you know, ugh, I slave over. Yeah, and then reread. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Second guessing, being like, no, it's fine, and be like, oh, what if I do this? It's like, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's a pleasure, and everybody should read it. <laughs> Absolutely, everybody should read it. September twenty fifth was there any reason for that date? That's the date they gave me. Uh, right. Why is it that with book releases these days, you announce a release date so far in advance? No idea. I like, think just so you can get advanced copies out or something. Right, I, right. No one has, like, sat me down and explained. I don't have a 
book agent or sure. anything. It's just me figuring this out right. like, as I go. Right, right, right. And so if somebody has published multiple books and they're like, that's not how it's done, I, you're probably right. I don't know. Right. But this is how it happened with me. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I, I wrote an entire book, which you're definitely mm-hmm. – I would send it to people and they were like, no one's going to buy this. Don't spend any time writing this. It's like mm-hmm. what somebody is like. It's like, you fuck. It's written. It's mm-hmm. in your inbox. Right. I wrote it. Right. Already. Uh huh. And yeah, so I sent it to agents. None of them wanted it. <laughs> 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 or they were like, I don't think I could sell it. And then I, so I, I don't know. Right. The whole thing is like, I've written nothing before, so why sure. would they look at it? It's about a niche thing that they probably don't know about. So sure. they're like, why would I? Right. There's a lot of like, I get it. Right. Well, well so what was the acceptance? letter or they were very it? excited and okay. and um they were happy that i sent it to them and it's kind of funny because the first person to ever book me on a show in chicago mm-hmm. the infamous and wonderful and infamous david uh mm-hmm. said uh, was the person who suggested i submit to them and mm-hmm. they were um thrilled to take it and have been wonderful to work with and so mm-hmm. uh i thought it was very appropriate mm-hmm. and i stopped shopping it after mm-hmm. that because i was right. like this this works you're gonna do a book tour was it book i'm gonna do something in chicago and something right. in that would make sense yeah and i've talked to kyle i've talked to beth i've talked to kumail about appearing somewhere because they've kumail's been so great about it he's mm-hmm. fucking busy mm-hmm. but he read the whole book and it was like very enthusiastic about it and mm-hmm. kanane did an interview and is uh, without a doubt, the nicest person in the world compared to their cantankerous persona. <laughs> Jezelnik is up there, but I don't know him as well. Right. But um, I feel like most of the time when somebody shows you I'm a piece of shit, they're usually the nicest person. Oh, sure. And somebody who's like, I'm a clean comic and mm-hmm. I play a, a doctor on TV with yeah. five kids and I just pitch pudding, then they rape. Right. Who's the big Chicago clean guy? Tim Clue? Is that who it is? Tim Clue's hilarious. Somebody sent me a Tim Clue. Was it you? I don't remember. I, but I remember somebody sent it to me. Is he a bad guy? I don't know that he's a bad guy, but when I think of clean comedian, somebody sent me that. It was like he exclusively works clean. He does like corporate gigs and shit. Oh, interesting. I've done show, a show with him uh-huh. that I was I, – I could go back through my old emails into the scent. Mm-hmm. And I could kind of relive stuff. And I remember doing a show with him, and people were emailing about how funny he was. Right. Tim Clue. But I don't know. That's also – that's such a, a weird thing to me. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that anybody would do that. But the idea that somebody was, like, so funny that you felt like you had to email the show. There was a group email amongst the comedians that were on the show. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and – the producer, who was Dave Odd, was like, I got comment cards back, and if mm-hmm. you want, in case anybody wanted to hear some of their compliments, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Right. And so it was it was like, yeah, fire away. I'd like to hear mine. And then, it, you know. Right. People had nice things to say about Tim Clue, who was the professional comedian on the show, whereas right. everybody else was 24. <laughs> just, <laughs> starting, you know. Right, 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 right. So he looked like amazing by comparison and that's you know that that would happen from time to time Mm -hmm. and probably happens in la all the time people like oh my god like a real comedian is on on this show with children Uh uh-huh you know 
Well, I mean, the lines get blurred as time goes on because some of those real children have become professional comedians too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, but but it, when you're in a scene, uh-huh. there was nobody older than us. Right. The oldest person was like Buscemi, and he mm-hmm. was like in his early 30s. Right. And so he was old mm-hmm. because he was the oldest. There weren't like – Mm-hmm. When I moved here, like Pepitone was at shows. Right. Jimmy Dore was at shows. Sure. Um, Marin. Marin was at shows. Like yeah. like the regular show, like Tiger Lily. Yeah. And like that show it takes. And like. Oh, French Toast. Yeah. French Toast. Mm-hmm. And like some of these, holy fuck. Like they had, but they were just like working their way around the scene and they were like in their 40s or right. 50s. Yeah. And we were in our 20s. So it just felt like cool. Or in LA, like there's like real older comics who are on these shows mm-hmm. whereas that was not the case at all in chicago when i was there it was all people in their earlier mid 20s or mm-hmm. maybe their late 20s right there wasn't i remember like when sean flannery turned 30 i remember thinking wow he's 30 <laughs> now somebody's like i'm 30 so i have the answers i'd be like you don't right but let's hear them being in my mid 30s and then going at mics and seeing like Gen Z kids in their early twenties, like starting out. I mean, it does make me feel a little old. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. they think that you're old. They just don't know. They they just yeah. don't tell you. Yeah. There was a guy who ran the Lions Den mm-hmm. when I was there. This, uh, in my opinion, maybe the greatest open mic in the history of comedy. Right. If you got other ones, show some receipts. Ooh. And he, over the pandemic, turned 50. Mm-hmm. Damn. Which means he was in his 30s. Right. And we were 24. Uh-huh. And this guy looked like he was 50 to me then. <laughs> like, it's wild how not old the, the old people were. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, of course they think. What do you think? Of, I mean, like me. I, yeah, they, they got to think I'm ancient. Mm-hmm. So it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I mean, some comedians who I have known whose whole thing was that I'm young, can't mm-hmm. do that anymore, and that's right. time. Time passes. Right. Um, how would you compare? You've been in LA for what, fifteen years? Yeah. yeah. Uh, how would you compare your time in the LA scene versus what you wrote about in your book? I remember everything so much clearer from Chicago because I was there for four years, mm-hmm. so I knew chronologically when everything happened and it was your formative years it was my formative years it was right after college like it felt everything was like magnified and important mm-hmm. and it was the first time i saw like everything and mm-hmm. so it was i was much more when i moved here mm-hmm. i feel like i remember everything so well too because everything was new again right but there was like probably five years in there where if you were like this ha- when did this happen i'd be like i don't even remember that right you know what I mean? Because like it just, it's it, I've just been here for so long, and not everything has been brand new to see, and you know, right? That sort of like, I don't know. And if it's also like, it was cool that I was in a different place, mm-hmm. and that people got famous in a different place. If it's here, and I was like, I did a show with Adam Devine, you'd mm-hmm. be like, who cares? He's mm-hmm. that's this is where he lives, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, that that just happens. That you'll be on a show with someone who's like your comedy idol. Yeah. Uh, and you just are a year in. Yeah. Like, 
I told Dana Gould that I fell off the couch laughing in fifth grade, mm-hmm. um, watching him on TV. And he's like, do you remember the joke? And I started explaining it to him. And he's like, oh, my God, you're watching the A-list. Mm-hmm. This was the joke. And he did the joke for me in conversation. Right. That was wild to me. The right. fact that I was on the show with him, people would be like, yeah, he does a lot of shows. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not as interesting, I guess. Right, but, right, right. But, uh, and that's why I don't. I think that L.A. scene stuff is not as, like, rich of a topic because mm-hmm. it's – I don't – when I read L.A. history stuff, it is interesting, but it's mm-hmm. also, like, this is where people live, mm-hmm. right? So, it's like, you have to have, like, a better angle probably. Right. I mean, that's where you would have to start – if I were to do one, yeah, you'd have to start at, like, the formation of Meltdown with Jonah and Kamal, which – People, comedy nerds should know, there was a show at Meltdown before Camille moved here. What was it? It was called The Meltdown. It was like, Jonah's monthly show? No, it, it was Jonah's monthly show that Ed Salazar had a lot to do with. Okay. Who does not do stand-up anymore. I see him every now and then. He's a uh, yeah, but he's now like, is a hobby, right? I don't think he d- goes up, but... No, he doesn't go up. But he'll go to shows. Like, oh, he will? Okay. Yeah, but he, he won't go up. Just like – I feel like Jim Hamilton will just pop up at a show every now and I again. I put him up in the past year. Yeah. For sure, but he definitely hadn't been up, you know. <laughs> but his persona – I was like, okay, his persona is that he's awkward. Right. So mm-hmm. go for it. Right. Yeah. I think I once described Jim Hamilton on stage as like um, looking for a fly flying around the room that isn't there. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I once heard – from a Comedy Central exec, how much they fought to get him a half hour on Comedy mm. Central, and right. they couldn't get it through. And I just just made me think, like, how life changing that would have been for him. Oh yeah. At that point, mm-hmm. and I was like, cool. <laughs> it's cool that you have the ability to just do that or not for people. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, there are so many untold stories. If you guys go to the comedy store and you look at the names on the wall, I'm gonna wager. Uh, money that I don't have that you would probably only recognize a third of the names. Sure. Like comedy clubs have put up photos of people mm-hmm. like <clears throat> those were somebody at some point to yeah. someone to put the frame around it and put right. it up. I mean, they unless they're like, we frame everybody who's ever performed here. Right. <clears throat> but that's that's what kind of sucks is that if somebody should be mm-hmm. getting this stuff down and you could cover a specific scene. Mm-hmm. I think, and that's the angle of it. If it's just like, mm-hmm. this is the history of comedy in L.A. from 2010 to whatever, people want to read it, but it's not as like snappy and like mm-hmm. it, you have. There has to be like a holy shit, you were there for that type of aspect right. to it. Meltdown. It has to be called Butthole Vietnam. Butthole Vietnam. You know, th- I mean, that would be sort of like accurate of how podcasts have progressed in the, in the last. That's an interesting book. 12 years or so. Well, yeah, because, I mean, a lot of your favorite podcasts have, like, been born out of a lot of drama. Sure. Yeah. I mean, specifically, there used to be a thing called Feral Audio, which yeah. my favorite murder started on as a podcast that is its own network now mm-hmm. that and has toured the globe multiple times. But, uh, yeah, Dustin Marshall, the guy who founded it, kind of just – his borderline personality disorder was not under control enough for him to uh, like run his podcast network. So he dissolved it one Christmas, one year, 
uh, kind of out of nowhere, and then all these podcasts had to find new homes. That'd be fun. Yeah. But that would be tied in to that. Yeah, because a lot of the same people, you know. Yeah. Karen I mean, was a part of the scene. Karen was a part of it. Chelsea Peretti had a call-in podcast. Doughboys were a part of that network. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of really foundational podcasts. Right. And it was born out of Dustin being uh, frustrated at Earwolf. There you go. You know? Seems like you should start pen to paper. <laughs> well, or before I get a, to that. Book proposal. Right. You want to do some comedy news? Yes. Okay. Let's do some comedy news. Real quick, um, you know, it should be noted the writer strike is still going on. I think we're entering uh, its third week right now, um, and there hasn't been any motion on anything. Um, the MPTP uh, are standing their ground, and uh, there are a lot of famous people on the picket line and a lot of people writing really clever signs for Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that I'm two minds about it. One is a lot of people are doing it for clout, which sure. is, which is eye rolling, but also I've been thinking about like, let's say that you are Howard Schultz at Starbucks or mm-hmm. let's say that you're Bezos and mm-hmm. you are sitting on a warehouse filled with the perfect amount of wrong. Mm-hmm. You probably don't love that celebrities mm-hmm. are making labor strikes look cool. Sure. That's great, right? Right. Maybe like, or like, I don't know, they're called influencers for a reason. You think around the country, people are not like, I'm underpaid and right. I could be replaced by AI. Mm-hmm. Should we organize? You know, that sort of thing. Right. Um, I would want to say yes, but I wonder if they have so much money that they are just like, yeah, whatever. We're the bad guys. I don't give a shit. Good luck. I mean, <laughs> I know, right? Good luck. You're... That seems to be their attitude. They really haven't like said anything in the press, like Bezos or Sarandos or any of them. Bob Bakish, Bob Iger, like, oh well, the writers misunderstand what uh, how the business works and. Uh, I mean, really, we we're giving them a fair deal, and they just want too much, and they're, that's just not tenable or sustainable. I mean, I don't know. try to have robots write it. I don't fucking <laughs> fucking right. pay people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a couple of days ago, there was a director by the name of Jacob Reed who crowdfunded for a plane to fly over um, L.A. that said, apparently a tweet, a hold for owner of Literary Cafe. Are we good? We're clear. All right, that's all staying in. (laughs) The tweet was, uh, pay pay the writers UAI holes. And uh, that costs eighteen hundred dollars to put on a banner and fly over the studios, which was crowdfunded in two days. So I mean, I joked about this on stage actually last night as of this recording, and I was like, of course, solidarity with the writers, pay them. But like, are they having too much fun currently? Uh, maybe I. That seems like a, not a, like not a great look. Right. Also, for like what you just said. Okay, I get the celebrity part of it, but I feel like 
Bezos definitely doesn't give a shit about that plane. Yeah, so who is that for? Yeah, who is that for? I don't know. I, I feel like if anytime you're spending money to fly a plane over a thing with like a message that says like legalize weed. Right. Like you have too much money. Right. And you should spend it mm-hmm. better. Yeah. You should buy the perfect amount of wrong on Bezos.net. Although I will give credit where credit's due. Pete Holmes having a plane. Oh, no. Uh, Kurt Pete, Pete Kurt Holmes Bronner. did write the foreword to my book, a perfect, The Perfect Amount Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Kurt Bronner, yes. I, I brought – no, I was I was there when the Skyrider was riding out in the sky, and Pete was the first person to say, where did you get this guy? Craigslist? <laughs> That's – I mean, the photo is good, right? Or was the photo well, doctored? The, it had to be stitched together. Okay. Because the guy took so long to write out how that do I – That was on the land. roof? Oh, the roof of the perch downtown. We could not get up. Right. Yeah, that was uh, that was like a everybody went there. Right. And it was like a wild, couldn't get into the fucking perch situation. But it was really crazy that like who was the skywriter? Because in my experience, they either do cursive, or they a lot of people what they do now is they have these dots. Oh yeah, this person like. They like printed it. Yeah, like it was like they were riding a drunk or something. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, so uh, that was a Robin von Swank uh, photo, or Robin or Liesel Estepona. Okay, I think it was von Swank, but I'm not sure. But the the photos had to be stitched together because the guy took so long to write the whole sentence that the first word was disappearing. Yeah, the whole thing. I mean. It's you probably need a run through. You probably need to say like, "Is this possible?" Uh huh. Like you probably need to know some. I mean, the idea is great. And yeah. The fact that he could fake it is great. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it really happened. It just like they they had to take a bunch of photos and put it together. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I I think it's fine. Like you don't need to necessarily write clever sign. I'd be fine with like eat the rich. You know, you could put that. That I feel like that's effective messaging. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't. The signs are shared on social media. I think that mm-hmm. I don't. I talk to people outside of LA every uh-huh. now and then for perspective, and I don't know how much this is penetrating their world. Well, that's what the studios are saying that, that it won't. They won't notice for a while. Yeah. But, but I, if the idea is to cause disruption to force conversation at the table, um then they need to do disruption that's actually caused something disruption to what producers give a shit about, which is money. Yeah. So what, what is that is my question. Do um, we just like not watch Netflix for a day? Done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not still watching. <laughs> Yeah, okay, go binge watch Wednesday one more time, and then no more for a day yeah. or a week or I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what that exactly. An was. unhoused man came into the lyric the other day, and mm-hmm. he said, "Is the strike still happening?" And I said, "Yeah, it's going to be going on for a few months, probably." Because he goes, "Not if they listen to my idea," and he left. <laughs> so there's a man <laughs> in a shawl with piercings in his face. Sure. Who has the answer? I just want you to know. Oh man, not if they listen to my idea. <laughs> and then uh, another uh-huh. person who works here is like, I swear to God, if you were going to be like, "What's your idea?" I would have left. Uh huh. But, but I didn't. 
I went, uh, I go, I just go, cool. Cool. I think I said great. I would have told him to sign up for the open mic to share his idea. Here's the thing. I don't think he had. Of course not. I don't think he had. Just like was. last night, that kid didn't come back to sign up, did he? He did. He did? He didn't. He came. Okay, so there's a kid. Oh, Nick's Neighborhood. Nick's Neighborhood, yeah. Nick's Neighborhood came. This kid and his posse, clearly a kid who was 18 because he asked about age. He asked how old he had to be to sign up. Yeah. He was 18. Uh-huh. And we're like, what? What do you do? And he's like, my stand-up is like 30 minutes. I got a, th- a joke that goes for 30 minutes. And I was like, great. You get five. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I can do it like in five-minute chunks. Like I can come back and just do it. We're like, yep. <laughs> yep, you can. I mean, in fairness, like he's, if he's seen stand-up, sometimes they talk for like 45 minutes to an hour to 70 minutes sometimes. Yeah. Like, so he probably was like, what do I got to do? Talk for that long? <laughs> And so he had an idea for a talk show, he said, mm-hmm. because like all these other talk shows like where their problem is, is they talk to celebrities. <laughs> his twist yep. would be he talks to his boys mm-hmm. called Nick's Neighborhood. And, and in, we were fa- like, in fairness, his boys were there. His boys were there kind of posing in the background like, yeah, mm, yeah, what's <laughs> up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, get some hype men. Come back. Tell your 30 minute story. We're ready for you. Actually, I would enjoy it. That kid's going to be so famous, <laughs> and I'm going to be telling this story to everyone's grandkids. Like, yeah. You knew Nick's neighborhood? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, he only pitched it to me. He pitched me, and I blew him off like he was nothing. <laughs> Made fun of him on a podcast called Butthole Vietnam. <laughs> Little did I know. He was the next – that motivated him to become mm-hmm. Kevin Hart <laughs> the second. I'm going to make Troy Conrad make Butthole Vietnam a setless topic <laughs> <laughs> several he's, times over. He's off in here. Yeah. He could be in your podcast book. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, I mean, Troy, man, you talk about a character in comedy. Created setlist and now is a professional photographer and setlist is like a side thing. Created setlist, really? He created setlist, yeah. Oh, I'm thinking of Sean Conroy, mm. Troy Conrad. Troy Conrad. He created setlist, and now, yes, those famous black and white photos. Right, and now he's like. The, I hate setlist. I've mm-hmm. I've sat in the crowd and been like, here's what I do with this one. Here's what I do with this one. Then I got up there. He gave me like nonsense words. I mean, they're all nonsense words, I, Mike. Sure, but I. The rule is you can't call it out because it's cheating. Yeah, but people do it anyway. I, I failed, and yeah. so I mm-hmm. dislike the show. Not him. I like him. Right. You dislike because you failed. You just got to find your way to do he it. He was a guy who would tape at 12 Shiny Nickels and photograph at 12 Shiny Nickels sometime right. when it was at Gardner Stages. Oh, Dan Bilek. Dan Bilek, the king of L.A., the nicest boy in L.A. Yeah, who's now in the OC, I guess? Yeah, Lisa Cheneau is like, I'm doing a Dan Bilek show, and I'm like, shut the fuck up. Is it Amazing Comedy Theater? That's his thing? I don't know, but he's still doing shows, though. Right. But no no fa- fake relationship with he Blue Chocolate Jazz Ponce used to run L.A. Oh, my God. I feel like this, this whole episode needs so many footnotes. Footnote it up, buddy. Yeah, Jazz Ponce, who tangentially has something to do with some show at, the, at Bar Lubitsch? I don't know. She has to do with what show? There's Jetpack? 
No. Josh and Josh? Maybe no, Josh and I did the last Josh and Josh. Did very, you? The very last one, yeah. Nice. And true to Bar Lubitsch form, they had double booked us and they kicked us out. I did a commercial with Brian, the the manager mm-hmm. of Bar Lubitsch. Anyway, they yeah. still do comedy there. They do, and it can be fun if they don't kick out the shows. Yeah, don't kick out the shows. No, the Josh and Josh 10-year anniversary like final show it was packed. Bar, I'd never seen Bar Lubitsch that packed, but they had booked these two Brits who I'd never heard of hmm. for a 10 o'clock show, so we had to end early. My favorite thing about Bar Lubitsch shows is standing behind a pole and not being able to see anything. Yeah, but it's a pretty-looking pole, isn't it? It's a great pole. Yeah, it's not just like a black metal pole. Uh, okay. Not a good seat in that place. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, two news items. Uh, ABC renews The Connors for its sixth season, Not Dead Yet for its second season. Have you watched episodes of either show? The Connors or what? The Connors or Not Dead Yet. I've never even heard of Not Dead Yet. The Connors, technically I've watched Roseanne. (laughs) I've seen that house. Uh Uh-huh. By proxy? No, I mean. (laughs) I've seen, listen, as soon as Roseanne's gone, there goes my worldview. You know what I mean? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That would have been a good tagline. Not Dead Yet is, I believe, a sitcom starring Gina Rodriguez from Jane the Virgin where she plays a struggling writer who gets assigned to write obits, and then all of a sudden she starts seeing ghosts of the people she's writing. I like it. Yeah. And is uh, John Goodman still on the Connors? I believe so, yes. Yeah, he he did not get kicked off. No? Does he have, he doesn't have thoughts about who looks like an ape. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, are transcripts of any of that going to come out with, like, Garland or F. Murray Abraham, who got kicked off of um, uh, Mythic Quest for being too much like his character? Yeah, that guy. Oh, I mean... It, it's kind of funny because I always think of that guy as like a Shakespearean sort of classically classically trained actor. Yeah, he's, he's a, still a dirtbag. He's as horny on White Lotus and horny on Mythic <laughs> Quest and horny in real life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Showtime is trying to bring back two of their uh, marquee series, Weeds and Nurse Jackie. Um, funny enough, uh, both the shows have been. <laughs> That's on. your review of both shows. Funny enough. Funny enough. Period. Um, sir. Oh, dude, you even talk about jumping the shark. I feel like weeds had a great start in season three. It was just like, oh, what is this now? Is it about selling weed? Yeah, this like suburban mom, uh, played by. Um, That's still a taboo thing. Well, that's the thing. Is like at the time it was. Yeah. And now, I mean, you'd have to make a whole different show. Call it Fentanyls. Fentanyls. I'll watch Fentanyls. Uh-huh. Um, Weeds is like, oh, my God, my grandma is on CBD, guys. And, it's like, and Netflix made a show like that, I great. believe, that, that got canceled or whatever. I mean, weed is boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not. there's no taboo-ness of it. Right. Uh, I mean, there was that HBO show that went for a few seasons that people really loved where the, they would – it was this sort of like 
kind of a mini series that was connected through the delivery guy. Oh, like, you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, that guy comes here. Oh yeah, he does clown. Oh yeah, that guy, Ben something. Ben Clownin. Ben, ben Ben Clownin. Wow, that's great. Um, the funny enough actually refers to Justin Kirk, who was. What is that called? I can't think of the name of it. Someone's screaming it into their mm-hmm. iPod. <laughs> wow! Shout out to you if you're listening to this on an iPod. On your Gen One, two thousand two iPod. Uh huh. <laughs> Oh boy! I mean, I'll look at it. It's it's the HBO. It uh, people really loved it, and the episodes that I I saw were great. I just cannot think of the name <laughs> for the life of me right now. Uh, I'll if I remember, I'll put it in the show. high maintenance. Yeah, it was. There you go. Is that right? Yeah, I made it up, and that's right. Congratulations! Thank you. Well, it was sitting on some neural <laughs> pathway, and then uh, it just had to be, you know, eked out. High. Just, maintenance yeah yeah um justin kirk who was a supporting cast of weeds thinks that uh no one really wants to watch a revival of weeds that they're and he's right he is right but everything is a existing ip so they're gonna have to bring back shows like this all the time right even if it's it's like they're gonna i mean it's like bringing back it's i mean it's funny to bring back Things that were like hot button issues at the time that right. nobody gives a shit about now, right? Like, you know, like Ellen saying that she's gay, or right. or or like Murphy Brown having mm-hmm. a child out of wedlock, right? Or guess who's coming to dinner? Yeah, where a non-white person comes to a white house uh-huh. to eat their food. You know, to that point, that's why like things like Nope, like Jordan Peele's Nope. I mm-hmm. feel should get a little less critical um, treatment because it's like a completely original idea. Yeah, like people came at that movie like a, a little hard that I, I I thought because it's not just a remake of something. Yeah, let's give people credit for not doing that. For yeah, sure. No, but people really liked picking that movie apart, and I'm like, it's an original idea. Really? I heard it, people effusively praise it. Maybe it was... Um, I think there's a mix of effusive praise, and then also people were like, oh, I mean, it was long. I mean, Lisa Traeger gets kicked in the face by a horse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lisa Traeger featured in your book? She is. She's mentioned, but uh, it's a little bit before her time. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. She's a young lady. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit before Lisa's time, but she's mentioned in there. Mm-hmm. It's like, here's who came after. Right. Lisa's great. Yeah, Lisa is great. Absolutely. Kicked in the face by a horse mm-hmm. on a camera. Yeah, I think uh, I things that are based on IP should be actually graded harder, and then sure. original ideas should be given more of a pass. I agree. Yeah. But I, you know, who am I to make everybody and then remade a thousand times? <laughs> yeah, you know th- that makes it like they're just gonna keep remaking Batman every like five to ten years. They, yes, they are, and, and people they, and are gonna keep fucking watching. There's it. movies that have nothing to do with Batman that are Batman movies, like The Joker. Yeah, could have been about a guy yeah. who was not the Joker. Right, 
and but they just had to shoehorn in mm-hmm. existing IP right. to make it. I everything is. I st- I didn't know what existing IP. I didn't know that term, intellectual mm-hmm. property. So right. I would call it the Mountain Dew code code ratification of everything, because <laughs> it's like, why does this have to be Mountain Dew? Right. It's not. Yeah. It's red. Right. And it tastes like other shit. Right. But they're like, no, but it's Mountain Dew. So you're like, I like Mountain Dew. Mm-hmm. I like red. Right. I like red Mountain Dew, I guess. Uh-huh. So they have to do that. Like S- Snickers is a bunch of shit now. Reese's right. is a bunch of shit. Mm-hmm. There's a trillion different types of Reese's peanut butter cups. Mm-hmm. And so people are like, I like Reese's. Mm-hmm. Reese's make good peanut butter. <laughs> So that's it. I do think corporate America thinks the average American does sound like that. Yeah, they do think that based <laughs> off of what they're giving us. Yeah, absolutely. You could call it anything else. Right. People would be like, I like chocolate. Mm-hmm. But I guess it, I guess the the flip side of that is they used to be like, it's Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I like Tom Cruise. Right. Or they'd be like, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. But I feel I like, like they, they've weaponized it even further. Like the new Indiana Jones movie. Oh, my God. Has Phoebe Waller Bridge in it, and it's almost as a point of like, oh, you guys like Phoebe Waller Bridge for how forward thinking her work is. Well, we're gonna put her in a fucking Indiana Jones movie, and you're gonna fucking watch it. I am gonna watch it. <laughs> we're all gonna watch it. I am going to watch it. Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you, and we all feel bad about it. I'm going to watch it. <laughs> it's not gonna be good. It's not going to be good. No. But I'm gonna watch. The fridge one again, <laughs> just to remind myself, because I've seen the first three a trillion times. Oh sure, I need to rewatch the fridge one. Uh huh. That's what you're cannot canonically calling you it. You know, it's called Indiana Jones Four: The Fridge One. <laughs> he survives a nuclear bomb, Jake. <laughs> yeah. By going inside a fridge. Right. And then it fucking bounces around town, and he gets out unscathed, and he's like, I hate snakes. Wow. I forgot about that detail because I think about what that movie did to Shia. Oh, my God. Yeah, I forgot Shia LaBeouf is in that one. Just ruining the rest of it. Whatever the (laughs) script didn't ruin and the performance. Because Harrison Ford's just seen counting his money in certain scenes. Right. My favorite thing nowadays with Harrison is how much he hates Star Wars. He's he's a creep in in like interviews and stuff. He's like, I get it for money. <laughs> like he just sits there with his fucking creep earring. And he's like, I like money. Oh, I, I just like re- flying planes in yeah. buildings. I remember Conan had him break apart like a to scale Lego model of the Millennium Falcon in front of Jordan Schlansky. And that was really funny. <laughs> He's he was like a set guy on mm-hmm. what is it, American what is it, American Graffiti? Yeah. He was just like some hunky dude who was on the set mm-hmm. and they're like, You wanna be like a beautiful man who go who's in this movie? And mm-hmm. he's just like, yeah, All right. And then <laughs> he becomes the most famous actor in the world. Right. He's now they made him see people love him so much you gotta CGI is 80-year-old body on the stuff. Right, because apparently enough people watch The Irishman for some statistician to discern that like this worked even though everybody made fun of CGI Robert De Niro 
It's a Scorsese mob movie. Yeah. Probably one of the worst ones. I mean, no probably. Yeah. I mean, it was, I don't know. I hated it. I hated it. It was four hours. Oh, sure. And it wasn't justifiable for it being four hours either. No, I hardcore fell asleep in the middle of it. I don't <laughs> even feel like I missed anything. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> you absolutely. I love Scorsese, but right. Jesus, man. Right. Make a miniseries. Yeah, what's wrong with that? TV is so prestigious. There's no like TV movie divide anymore. No, I don't. And somebody could be like, why don't you just pause it and go do whatever you're going to do? It's like, because we're conditioned to sit and watch the thing. Well, I watched it in a movie theater. Well, yeah. That had to be hard. It, it was. And I, I watched it at the Egyptian, too. I need to be CGI'd by the end of this. I'm an old man now. Right. Speaking of which, that's the end of our time. Thank you for having me, Jake. I love having you on, Mike. Thank you so much for doing it. Uh, where can people find you? Is there anything else you would like to promote, like your book uh, and your podcast? And My podcast is Honk with Mike Bridenstine. You can listen to it wherever you're listening to this. Mm-hmm. Jake is often a guest. We love Jake on that show. He's a, he's a, he's a fan. It's a, it's a panel show, and he's I, always great on there. I, I always like – uh, firing comedy questions at him. Uh, I have and then two... always bring out my parents for some reason. I do. Yeah, I, almost every time I, I like there... to hear. Uh, I don't know that many people whose parents are Trump supporters. Yeah, and yours might be. And so I like to hear. Are, I like to hear that take of it. My mom's a DeSantis guy. Well, he's a. <laughs> She's. One of the few that are left, I think, yeah, I know. after this past couple weeks of him. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have two comedy albums you can check out. Mm-hmm. One is Aging Poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is Perfect. Uh, I have shows. In, if you're in L.A., I have a show on Wednesdays called Microdose. I have another one on Fridays called Flagship. Jake has done both shows. And very fun. If you are out and about in L.A., I'll be at the Lyric Hyperion most other nights. Come say hi. Yeah. And Perfect Amount of Wrong is available September. September 25th. Uh, available on Amazon. And if you're morally opposed to that, uh, good luck buying things. Or Barnes & Noble. Uh, IndieBound. Go to your local bookstore. Go to bookstores. But you can pre-order it now. Is you there going to be an audiobook? Uh, nobody has told me anything, but a lot of people have asked me. Uh huh. So I don't know. Would you uh, want to do one? God, that sounds like a tedious, thankless thing. I, you know, I was really, I forgot what the time ran out to, but I remember Kill Martin did audiobook version of her book. I was surprised, like, oh, I didn't think it was going to be that short of a time. It's a cadence that I'm not used to as well. Like, sure. listening to Jenna Friedman do this for this long and knowing how she talks and it's not this way is very strange sometimes. Oh, and she but didn't apologize get... every other sentence? <laughs> <laughs> no, she did not. I would have enjoyed that. She okay, does I'm... make some side comments, but uh-huh. it is, yeah. Jenna Friedman's book, Not Funny. I'll plug that one too. I'm, I'm happy to do I love to Jenna, guys, but when she's working out material, rest assured, she will apologize a thousand times before the end of her set. Yes, 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 yes. For sure. <laughs> Um, I'm Jake Kroger. You can I created the Comedy Bureau. You can find the Comedy Bureau at thecomedybureau.com at the Comedy Bureau across socials. You can find me on Instagram at not the supermarket on Twitter at MFJ Kroger. So many great causes to support at this time. Um, I ask that you please support those. But if you have money and generosity left over, please support the Comedy Bureau to keep it running. 
And do you have anything to say as we sign off here, Mike? I love you. Love you too, buddy. Uh, live comedy is happening, and you can read about live comedy happening in books like The Perfect Amount of Wrong, and as the great Bertie Stevens would say, enjoy it! The Comedy Bureau Field Report is recorded, produced, and edited by Jake Kroger, music by Brian Grineo, artwork by Andrew Delman and KT, and part of the Believe Podcast family. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.